Thank you. Please be seated. You know, I've also often wondered over the years, I've known friends who have been drafted. Actually, I'm old enough to remember the draft back during the Vietnam War. I was very small then, but there was a draft. And then there are men and women who just volunteer. They serve. They sign up. They're not drafted. They are willing people who, for whatever reason, give of their lives for the service of this country and to fight for freedom. And I've always wondered as they are signing up, what goes in their minds? What process do they use in order to assess the journey that this service is going to bring them? I don't think anybody is a martyr. They don't deliberately sign up in order to die. But I wonder if the back of their minds where they're signing up for this incredible service and giving the ultimate sacrifice, if they aren't going to be called to give that ultimate sacrifice. That's got to be in their mind somewhere when they're signing that dotted line and they're shaving their heads and putting on that uniform and going through training. And I wonder as they're thinking about the possibility then, being greater than what you and I would have a tendency to deal with on a day-to-day basis, the possibility of their soon and coming death because of their sacrifice and their service to the nation. Their death could be a reality. They could be called at any moment to a faraway distant place and be called to give the ultimate sacrifice. That's that's kind of going to be in the back of their mind somewhere. How do they overcome the fear of death? To overcome that fear to the point where they're willing to sign their lives and give their lives for a great cause, such as the United States of America. Because fear's got to be a part of that concept. It's got to be a part of that that, that process in which they're, they're working through in order to sign the dotted line and then to, to train and to serve and to go. They've got to have it back here that, that they might die. And so there is basically, I think, a fear that we all have, a fear of, of dying and how we're going to die. And yet they go into battle after battle and conflict after conflict and dangerous thing after dangerous thing and, and, and knowing that they might, might not ever return if they might die. And there have been many films that have depicted brave men and women who've gone into conflict and have overcome the fear of death and have fought valiantly for the freedoms that we enjoy in the United States of America and for that we're eternally grateful. How do they overcome that? And as I thought about Memorial Day and as I thought about how men and women are signing up and overcoming fear and yet committing to serve, I thought about the text today and the disciples that we're going to be discussing in Matthew chapter 10 beginning with verse 26, did they sign up for death? Did they knowingly commit to follow Christ unto death? I mean, we have made this journey through the gospel of Matthew for quite some time now, and we have seen early on where Jesus one by one selected the disciples. He issued to them a call, and they responded to that call, and they committed to follow Jesus And in that commitment to follow Jesus, was there somewhere in the process of that call and that understanding of that call that this journey would lead them to death? Did they fully understand the cost and the sacrifice that would be asked of them as they committed to follow Jesus? I'm not quite completely sure they totally understood where the end of the line would take them. What we do know is Jesus is taking them step by step progressively toward the ultimate call. For he has so far in this short abbreviated study of ours, he has called them in the last part of chapter 9, he's commissioned them to pray. Pray the Lord of the harvest to send out 
messengers with a message of the Messiah. That's their mission, to be messengers. Pray the Lord of the harvest. And then in Matthew chapter 10, in the early part of the verses, verses 1 through 5 and so forth, he says to them, you are the answer to that prayer. I'm going to send you out. You're going to go on a mission, proclaiming a message as a messenger representing me in a very hostile harvest field. There's a harvest that I have prepared for you already. It is ripe for the picking. And as you go out, there's going to be oppression. There's going to be persecution. There's going to be hardship. There's going to be difficulty. And I can imagine the disciples, while they're sitting there listening to that, do they fully comprehend as they were being sent out the cost that would be asked of them as they were out in the harvest field seeking to accomplish the mission of Jesus? Did they fully understand that? Not totally sure they did. They heard the words, but did they fully comprehend what he was saying? And Jesus is preparing them, and he's sending them out, and he's saying there's going to be oppression and persecution and hardship, and some of you are going to die. And in the text we're going to study today, he says to his disciples, notice, I want you to overcome your fears, Because you're out in the harvest field, you're not only going to be oppressed, there's not only going to be oppression, but there's going to be persecution. They're going to come after you as they are going to come after me. And you can't expect as a representative of mine to to bypass the persecution that I'm going to have to endure. I'm going to die on a cross, and some of you too are going to be asked to die. And in this process of of fulfilling this mission on this journey out in the harvest field, some of you are going to be tempted to be afraid. And what he doesn't want them to do is to allow fear to dictate and determine the choices that they make while they're serving him out in the mission field. He wants them to overcome their fears and to continue on on the mission that he has assigned to them. Overcome the fears. To overcome the anxieties. And so I want us to go to this text, and I want us to sort of look today at how we might be able to do that. Now, I want you to notice in the text, there are three references today to the word fear. And if you take a a look at the Webster's Dictionary, which I did, it's interesting that Webster defines fear this way. Fear, according to Webster, is to be afraid of something or someone. Fear is to expect or to worry about something bad or unpleasant. Fear is to be afraid or it is to be worried. If you take the Webster and then you take a look at the Greek word in the New Testament that we're studying today, the word fear in the Greek New Testament means to be frightened. It means to be afraid or to feel anxious about the uncertainties and the unknowns of the future. It means to feel apprehensive about a circumstance or a situation that is beyond your control and that is, that is not necessarily something that you fully understand will or will not happen. And so you're filled with fear based upon this imagination. Now, I don't know about you, but fear is a good thing. And some of you are addicted to fear. I always wonder about these people who like to watch movies that make you frightened. Anybody here like to watch scary movies? Be honest, raise your hand. Any of you out there like to be frightened? These people are very few and far between and there's something wrong with you people. Okay, something wrong with you people. Who watches these kinds of movies? 
Who likes to sit in a movie theater and to be frightened out of your wits? You, you gravitate toward that. You people are dangerous. We need, raise your hand so we know who to stay away from. Okay, we don't stay away from these people, right? So, <laughs> but fear can be a good thing, a positive thing. A fear keeps me from jumping off a 20-story building. Fear keeps me from driving 150 miles an hour to church this morning. Fear that I might get an accident or fear that, that I, I might get stopped by a police officer or fear that I might pass someone who's coming from the same direction that I'm coming from. And so you have, to, you have to allow yourselves to have some sort of fear because fear sort of protects us from doing what I would call not so smart things because there are things out there that if we do them, they would hurt us. And so we need to be afraid of certain things. So fear can be positive. There's also a positive fear in relationship to God because the Bible does say that we are to fear him. Because it is fear that sometimes dictates whether or not we are going to obey him or not. Kind of like when I was growing up, my father, I was afraid to disobey him. And so I obeyed him out of fear because I knew if I disobeyed, what was coming? My father believed, and he's probably going to watch this at some point and give me a call this week, spare the rod, spoil the child. And I, I got the belt many times, okay, a lot of times. So much so that I can remember in my memory hearing the loops coming out of the, uh, you know, the belt coming out of the loops. How many of you know that sound? That and you go, oh my soul. Okay. Fear's a good thing. And God says that we ought to fear him. We're going to talk about that in a minute. It's positive. Fear can also push us to God because fear recognizes our, in, our inadequacies, our insufficiencies, our lack. And so we run to God for support, for strength, and for help. And so fear can push us toward God. But fear can also be a negative thing in that fear can paralyze us. Thinking about Mary when the angel came. And he said, fear not. She was afraid, not only of the angel, but afraid of what God was asking her to do. And he said, fear not, because fear can paralyze us. Fear can keep us from moving forward because we're unaware or, or, un or, or, or we just don't know what's coming. And so we imagine all these possibilities and we just stay where we are and we don't move forward. Fear of, of loss or fear of cost or fear of the unknown. And fear sometimes paralyzes us in our faith as well. And so fear is something that I think all of us in here struggle with, and he knew, Jesus did, that the disciples would struggle with fear. So let's quickly look at how we might be able to neutralize the anxieties and the fears in our lives. Number one, we need to exemplify, exemplify unshakable assurances. assurances. Hebrews 11.1, 1, faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. We have assurances. And these assurances, Jesus is telling his disciples, beginning with verse 26, so have no fear of them, of them who would persecute you, for that's the future, that's what's coming. So as a result of all of that I have said to you, all of the persecution and the pressure and the hardship and the pain and even the death that's going to come from those who would seek to harm you, so do not fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be 
revealed and nothing is hidden that will not be known. The assurance here is that God is omniscient, and that is a very large word, but the word omniscient means that God is all-knowing. He is all-knowing. There is, there is no truth that he doesn't know. There isn't no lie that he doesn't know that's a lie. God is all-knowing. He knows everything about everyone, every time. There is nothing that God doesn't know. There is nothing that God doesn't see in the past, the present, and the future all at the same time. And he's reminding his disciples that if they're not careful, they will allow fear to rob them of the reality of the truth that God, who is omniscient, who knows everything, knows exactly what they're going through. Because you see, he reminds them there's nothing that is covered that will not be revealed and nothing hidden that will not be known. In other words, there are those who are plotting their demise And in plotting their demise, they're doing it in secret, in hiding. And they think that nobody knows what they're doing, and they're deceptive, and they're they're disguising their motives and their intentions. And so as a result of that, he's reminding them, they may think that they're doing this in secret. They may think what they do to you is in hiding, but I'm going to uncover them. I'm going to expose them because not only do I see it, but eventually at some point, everyone will see what they have done and why they did it. A lot of times when we're pressed with fear, we have a tendency, Lord, do you know what I'm going through? You see this? And he assures us that he does. And then in time, everyone else will see what they have done. Secondly, notice the omnipresence of God. Talks about the omnipresence of God, meaning that God is everywhere all of the time. He's omnipresent. Notice it says in the text, verse 27, what I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. I could preach a full sermon just out of that one verse, (laughs) but we're going to go very quickly through this. I want you to notice that we should not let fear keep us silent. A lot of times when we're afraid, we withdraw, we internalize, and we're quiet, and we become silent. And what he's saying to those that he's addressing his disciples, when you go out into the harvest field, I am present. And I, Jesus Christ, will tell you what to say. How will he tell them what to say? He's going to whisper. They're going to shout. He's going to whisper into their ears. How close do you have to get to somebody to whisper so that the others around you cannot hear? How close is that? I would say that's pretty close, wouldn't you? where he's whispering right here what he wants them to say. You see, they're going to be taken to court. They're going to be lies. They're going to be propagated against them. They're going to be untruths. They're going to be brought before the judges and the courts and the high courts, and they're not going to know what to say. And Jesus said, don't you worry. I'm going to be with you in that court, and I'm going to whisper into your ear what to say. I am going to be present with you. And I think sometimes when we're filled with fear, we question the presence of Christ with us. Not only does he know what we're going through, but he's saying, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for thou art with me. You are with me. So when you're afraid, recognize that God knows and God is present. Number three, God's omnipotence then also is another assurance, meaning that he is all powerful. Notice the verse in verse 28, and do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. 
Sometimes fear causes us to move towards self-preservation. And Jesus is saying, don't, don't let that happen. Fear causes us to move towards self-preservation. Because the reality is that there are some who are going to persecute you and going to oppress you, and they're going to attempt to take your life. And you're going to be tempted. You're going to be driven to be afraid. And out of fear, you're going to withdraw because you're not going to step up and publicly proclaim nor acknowledge that you are mine. I can imagine in the arena when the Christians are being fed to lions, just before they had an opportunity possibly to deny their, their, their faith in Jesus, and yet they did not. Thinking about the 20-plus the Christians who recently we saw on the news who were lined up on the beach, who one by one refused to deny Christ, and one by one they lost their heads. Why wouldn't they deny Christ? Because, you see, they knew the principle in this text, and the principle is this, that it's better for us than to take a stand for Christ in the temporary because this life is a very short life compared to the eternal, and if we're not careful, we'll seek preservation in this life and forget about the eternal destination that we have in the everlasting life. For man can take your life, but he can't touch your salvation. He can't affect your soul. But God, who is all-powerful, is more powerful than man. Not only can he take your life, but he has control over your eternal destiny. Rather, fear him who can destroy not just the body, but can send you to eternal hell. I was afraid of my dad when I was a kid to disobey him, and that fear often drove me to obedience. And I think sometimes if we're not careful, we will allow the fear of what man can do in this temporary life to move us towards self-preservation rather than understanding that if we will step out, irregardless of the cost or the sacrifice that is required of us to take a stand for Christ, that it's better to fear God in our eternal destiny than to fear man in the temporariness of the loss that we're experiencing today. For what we lose today is only temporary, and what we gain later on is eternal. And so we must had this unshakable assurance that God is not only omniscient, omnipresent, but he's omnipotent, all-powerful. Secondly, everyone should express unforgettable affirmations. There are some unforgettable affirmations that he wants us to understand. He now moves to affirming three truths to his disciples. He wants them to understand these. Notice he wants them to understand God's divine attentiveness. He's affirming God is attentive toward you. Notice in verse 29, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? I, I like that. And not one of them will fall to the ground. Notice the words, apart from your father. Apart from your father, meaning he is sovereign over all. A little insignificant sparrow cannot fly up to the sky or drop below, or the word could also mean drop to the ground dead, apart from the will of God. A little insignificant sparrow. Nothing happens apart from God. And so he wants his disciples to understand that as they're being sent out into the harvest field, 
that nothing can happen to them that's not in accordance to the plan, the purpose, or the will of the Father. And whatever happens is for the advancement of the kingdom, of the message, of the salvation of lost people. And so he says, I want you to know that I'm very attentive to your needs. I'm attending to your needs. I know what your needs are before you know them, and I will attend to your needs. And if I attend to even the needs of a little insignificant sparrow, I will attend to your needs. I am an attentive God. I'm not an absentee landlord. I am an attentive God, and I know who you are. I know what you're going through, and I'm attentive to you and to, your plan and to my plan and to my purpose. And secondly, he says, not only am I attentive, but I'm aware. Notice he says in verse 30, but even the hairs of your head are numbered. The awareness of God, he is aware how many hairs you have on your head. How many hairs do you have on your head this morning? Ladies, <laughs> zero. How many, how many hairs did you, when you combed your hair, ladies, how many of those wound up in the comb? Gentlemen, how, how many more hairs did you have 10 years ago than you have today? Did you know that the average human being has 140,000 hairs? That's the average. That means some of us have more than 140,000, and half of us have less than 140,000. And I can probably attestify the reality, I'm probably one who has less than 140,000 you don't believe it, just look at the back. Back here, it's being gone right there too. And it's also going back here. It's, it's what can I say? And every time I lose a hair, I say, God, are you counting that? Can you put it back in? And we claim to have things that can grow hair. I'm not sure they do. But God knows how many hairs you have on your head. I don't know about you, but I call that a pretty, pretty much an aware God, don't you? I mean, he's, he's paying such close attention to you that when you lose a hair from your head, minus one. When one grows, plus one. I would say that that's, that that's a God who's aware of who you are, where you are, and what you're going through. For fear has a tendency to question, God, are you present? God, are you aware of what I'm going through? And God says, I'm not only aware of what you're going through, I am so attentive to you, I know exactly how many hairs you have on your head every second of every day. And if there's 7.1 billion people on the planet, 7.1 billion, how many hairs is that? Do the math. And yet God knows how many hairs are on every head of every person on the planet every millisecond. I'd say that's a pretty aware God, wouldn't you? Don't buy in the satanic lie that says that God's not aware of who you are, where you are, and what you're going through, because he is. There's nobody more aware than him of who you are, what you're going through. And so we see not only the awareness, but there's a divine assessment in this text. Notice he says in verse 31, fear not, therefore, stop being afraid. You're out in the trenches, you're out in the harvest, the oppression and the persecution is coming. Stop letting fear control you. Why? You are of more value than 
many sparrows. You are of more. There's an assessment here where he's giving sort of value in this assessment. He said many thousands of sparrows are worth far more to me than, than you are. Is that what he's saying? Are you more valued to him than all these sparrows? Now, don't underestimate the value of a sparrow because God took time to create the sparrow. And while there are two sparrows, only cost a penny, we read it earlier, to be offered at a sacrifice, which is the smallest sacrifice, one copper coin could buy two sparrows when you went to the temple to sacrifice, that was the smallest sacrifice you could offer on the altar. And even though that's the smallest, most insignificant of sacrifices, yet it still has value. You are of more value to me than even the sparrow that I have created and that I am sustaining. You have more value to me. I mean, you take a look at the one passage in John 3.16, we see our value. God values us so much that for God so loved the world. God so loved you that he gave his one and only son. He values you more than he does the sparrow because Christ didn't come to die for the sparrow. He came to die for you and for me and for human beings. The sparrow doesn't have a soul. On like some of you may think, your dogs are not going to heaven. I know that little movie came out, All Dogs Go to Heaven. Dogs don't have souls. And while some of you treat your dogs better than you do your children, some of you senior adults, they're not humans. And when they die, that's the end of their lives. But we have souls. We are of more value than the sparrow the father gave his one and only son. But you know what? We are of more value to Jesus because Jesus died on a cross so that we might live. We human beings have more value to God. And because in that, that whole assessment thing, because you have more value than the sparrow, he sent his son, his one and only son, that whosoever believeth in him would not perish but have everlasting life. These are some affirmations that should help us when we're tempted to fear. But notice, lastly, there's an undaunted allegiance that I think we need to exercise, an undaunted allegiance. Notice he says in the verse, verse 32, notice the rewards of courage. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also would acknowledge my, before my Father who is in heaven. Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. When someone chooses to be aligned or they choose their allegiance to Christ and they acknowledge publicly, declare their, their faith in Jesus as their Savior and commit to make him the Lord of their lives, what's the promise? What's the reward? He will acknowledge us before the Father. But notice the rejection of the coward in verse 33, but whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. When someone chooses his allegiance to be a temporary allegiance with this world and has no understanding of the eternal allegiance he should give rather than to Christ when his life is being laid on the line, do you believe in Jesus? If you recant, you will live. And here I think the idea is that this person's life is at risk. Where you might be that person that is 
that is kneeling on that shore in that distant place and someone has a, a sharp object over your head and they say, deny Christ and live, claim to be a Christ follower and die. Your choice. And what will you choose? Jesus says, at that moment, that point, at that moment, if you choose this temporary life over eternal life, I'll deny you in heaven. So the question is, how often have we been guilty of denying Christ to self-preserve our lives? Take a very quick look, and we're going to end with this passage in Acts chapter 5, verse 17. Acts 5, 17. One very vivid, very wonderful New Testament illustration, and we'll close. Matthew I mean, Acts 5, 17. Now, in Matthew chapter 26, Acts 5, 17. In Matthew 26, we learn of Simon Peter, one of the 12 disciples, who is with Jesus in the upper room, and they have just observed the Lord's Supper. And following that, the Bible says they sang a hymn, and they began to make their move toward the Mount of Olives. And as they were making their way to the Mount of Olives, Jesus says, hey, this very night, you guys are going to desert me. You're going to deny ever having known me. And Simon Peter steps up to the plate and puts his foot in his mouth and says, not me. Jesus said, yes, you. He said, not me. He said, this very night, Simon Peter, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows. If I have to die for you, I will not deny you. That's what he said. We know what happens in Matthew 26 in the latter part of that chapter. He's the only one who follows in the shadows at a distance when Christ is arrested he finds his way in the courtyard where Jesus is being tried. And three times, three different occasions, people come to him. And it's finally the last one he curses and he denies having known Jesus. And as soon as he does, the rooster crows and he suddenly is reminded of the haunting words of Jesus that predicted that he would do exactly what he did. And yet I wonder, Jesus, in his compassion when he's telling them this, knew exactly, even though he boldly declared his intent. <laughs> You're going to do it, I know. What we learn then later on in this, after Jesus dies and he resurrects from the dead, he encounters Simon Peter one-on-one, -on -one, and Simon Peter's faith is restored. We learn that Simon Peter, after the fall of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, is the one that preaches that incredible message, standing up boldly in Jerusalem, declaring to thousands, about Jesus, and thousands are saved. We learn later in Acts chapter 4 that Simon Peter is so now bold in declaring his faith. This, this coward back in the courtyard is now boldly declaring his faith in Jesus in the streets of Jerusalem, and they, they bring him before the court, and they said, stop telling about Jesus. He said, I can't. I, I can't be silent. You can't quiet me. I don't care what you do, I can't be silent. Notice in Acts 5 now, the same Simon Peter, verse 17. But the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles, all the apostles, and put them in public prison. Here's the, the prediction of Jesus fulfilled in Matthew chapter 10. They were going to be arrested. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go and stand in the temple and Speak to the people all the words of this life, the life that's found in Jesus. 
And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. They said, hey, go get the apostles and bring them here. We're going to try them. They didn't know they had escaped. Verse 22, but when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and they reported. We found the prison security locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priest heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this could, how, how this could have come about. In verse 25, and someone came and told them, where are they? Someone came finally and said, hey, gooberheads, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and they're teaching the people. Where'd they go? To the temple, unafraid. Proclaiming, preaching, and proclaiming in the temple. Then the captain of the officer went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. Verse 27, and when they had brought them, they sat them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, we strictly charge you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem. Notice, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intended to bring this man's blood upon us. Notice Peter and the apostles, they answer, we must obey God rather than man. We must obey God rather than man. Simon Peter, who failed Jesus once in that courtyard, was not going to fail him again. We live in the United States of America, and we're free to worship as we choose. Because there have been many men and women who have given their lives so that we might have this freedom. But I'm convinced one of these days this freedom is going to be taken from us. And it's not going to be very long. And we are going to be standing before man. And they're going to say, be quiet. Stop your message. Stop your preaching. Stop your teaching. Stop or suffer the consequences. And what then is going to happen with our testimony depends upon you and upon me, about the choice that we make at that very moment, in that point of time, in regard to our testimony and our witness of our faith in Christ. There have been many of us here today who have had a job on the line. Deny Christ or lose your job. Join us in what we're doing. Don't hold to your values or to your morals, to your principles. I remember when my children were young, they wanted to come to church on Wednesday night and Sunday night. The coach said, if you do, you won't get to start on the baseball team. I was the preacher's son. I'm a kid. <laughs> preacher's son, but a preacher's kid. And, and, and as I talked to my, our children when they were young, I said, you make the choice. I could have told them what to do. You make the choice. You know what they chose? What my youngest chose? He said, Dad, I'd rather come to church than start. So every Wednesday night and every, every Sunday night, he went to church and he didn't start. 
But about the second or third inning, they always put him back in because they needed him out on the field. Choices that we make are critical to the testimony that we live. And they, they anchor our faith so that one day, as we stand before, and I'm convinced many of us in this room will stand accountable to man, and they will say, deny Christ or die. The question is, will you overcome your fear? Don't let fear neutralize your faith, but overcome fear and neutralize your anxieties by putting your trust and your faith in God. Let's pray.